How many of you tonight are familiar with the scandal of particularity besides Ray? Well, it is a, uh, it's a theological argument that is out there. It is a, uh, it is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. And I think it's a fitting conversation for us to have as we move forward into the final section of Hebrews chapter 7. And here's essentially what we're talking about. The scandal of particularity, the difficult truth that the only Savior of all humankind was born into a particular culture at a particular time in history. Now you can imagine if you were a skeptic, to any degree, how this would create a problem for you. Because it is rather unthinkable that the God of the universe would only appear at one time, in one place, in one culture, and that would be it. That, that's a, it's, it's strange. And if you further sort of track with the particulars of what I'm talking about, the fact that Galilee is located in the boondocks of the Roman Empire. It would be the last place you would choose. Even the Jews regarded it as insignificant. And yet, this is the place that God chooses. It's very particular. It's very strange. And yet, God chooses. This is where God chooses to have His Son spend the majority of His short ministry. In this one little place, so long ago, so remote, so far removed from us. Wouldn't it seem that it would make more sense if God were to, would, would send his, his Son to every generation, to every continent, to every people group, to every language group, to something. But this concept that the, the universal door to eternal life comes one time, one place, and of all places and times, it would be the place and time in which he came. It's very strange. And in light of that, we have to ask ourselves questions like, for example, how many times do we complain that the ministry that we've been given or the function that we've been given within the body is unimportant? And why would we come to that conclusion? Because we would think that what we do, the function that we, the way we fit into the body, the, 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 the place, the mechanism in which we are within the, the church, we don't see it as being the, the choice place. The, it's, it's rarely, the, almost never, if, if I were to, let's just be honest, if I were to just go around the room and individually we had a conversation about this. How many of you in the room would say to me, Pastor, I, I am in the place functioning and doing the thing that is of maximum uh, benefit to the kingdom right here and now where I am. None of you, probably. And so we would say, well, you know, and then there'd be all sorts of degrees of 
unimportant and less than. Because what we would do is we would see, we have this grid in our mind where we see more successful Christians and we wonder why we haven't been given more influence. So basically what we're doing is we're adopting this worldview, this secular understanding to come to the conclusion of how important or impactful or useful we are. But this is what's so beautiful about the, the particulars of what God has done. Galilee should remind us that such questions aren't important to God. You see, if God were into the choicest location, if he were into the the, the issues of maximum exposure, he would have done things utterly and completely different than what he did. You see, he didn't send his son to Times Square, you know, in the 20th or 21st century. He did the opposite of that. He's telling us something about himself and about the way in which he works. And so when it, with regards to the way we view ourselves or what we are, are able to do or how we function, we need to remember that God cares much more about the depth of our faithfulness than the level of our popularity or maybe exposure or the centrality, the way we see of what we do or whatever the case may be. Because... God knows the present scope of your ministry does not dictate its eternal impact. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? Had you been a resident of Galilee at the time of the Incarnation, would you have observed the events and said to yourself, well, here I am, look at this. I am in the epicenter of all history. I am alive and I am seeing this uh, occurrence that this once in, a, in an, in an all-time occurrence that will change the face and scope of all of humanity from here forward. Of course you wouldn't. You know what you would have said? You would have said, I'm in this podunk hillbilly town. And yeah, there's some commotion going on and it seems to be a little bit exciting to a few people. But basically what I'm worried about is getting food on the table and, the, and trying to stay out of the way of the oppressive ruling people and just survive. And you would have thought the same thing then as you think now. It doesn't look like it's that great. But after all, though he sent his son to a tiny village of Galilee, he knew that in due time, the message would touch the entire world. And so really what I'm saying is, is that the way we respond to these particulars is that we, we focus ourselves on being as utterly faithful as we can in the context in which we are, but not limiting ourselves simply to that. So we want to be open to what God might do in our lives. We want to be open to where God might take us or where he might lead us. But that's not really our concern. What is our concern? Our concern is being faithful 
where we are. This is the conversation that I have whenever I'm somewhere and I'm having a, you know, and, and someone is, uh, I just had this uh, conversation with a, a pastor from Nigeria when I was in Tennessee a few weeks ago. And we were having a conversation. And when he started asking me questions about myself and my own journey, and when I told him that I pastor the only church I've ever been a member of, he just sort of stepped back. And in his broken English, he, he said, that, brother, is a remarkable story. And then he said, are you going to, do you think that you'll stay there until the end? And I said, how do I know? That's not up to me. My job is to be faithful every day that I am and to be open to whatever God wants to do. That's God's call. That's not my call. It's the same thing is true for you. If someone asks you, well, will you ever leave Michael Memorial? You say, sure, if God calls me to leave. If he tells me to leave, I'll leave because he's God. And you'd be a fool not to, right? So the point is that there are particulars, but there's also scandal. The particulars become extra scandalous, if you will, when we say that there's one particular pathway to God. And only one particular person through whom we can be reconciled to him. You see, if we think about what God has done, it is in many ways scandalous. Normally, not in the way that most skeptics or critics make it out to be. They will normally uh, fixate on the narrowness of a God who would only love a particular person people who, you know, do a particular thing, which is absolutely the wrong, it's, it's not gospel, and it's incorrect, biblically. God's love is not exclusive, it's inclusive. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He, he has the most inclusive love you could possibly have. All who call upon the name of Christ are saved, right? So it is the most inclusive love that could ever be. But the door to access the love is what's exclusive. Anyone's welcome to come, but there's only one way to come. And that's a scandal. So I would agree that the particulars of God's incarnation are scandalous, not because there's only one way for a sinful man to be reconciled to God, but because there is any way at all. That's what the scandal is. The scandal of the gospel is that any sinner could enter into the presence of God, that any sinner would be adopted into the family of God, that any sinner would be accepted and forgiven and all at the expense of the God who created them. That's what's scandalous. What's scandalous is the, the king who dies for the sake of the subject, the peasant. That is the scandal. 
So, what do you think the most scandalous thing about God is? Well, it's got to be grace. It's got to be. Well, what is more scandalous than that? The fact that we are the recipients of favor that is utterly unmerited, that we have no possibility of achieving or attaining. But that God would do it on our behalf. And so that's the perfect segue into this final piece of Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read verses 26 through 28. The writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting, indeed fitting, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once and for all, he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You talk about a scandal. You talk about particular. Now, these three verses, profound as they are, and filled with implications for us. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that under no uncertain terms that Jesus as our high priest is exactly what we need. He is exactly who we need. That we were designed to need Him. He wasn't conformed to meet our need. We were designed to need Him. We were crafted. If we were a puzzle, we were crafted as a puzzle incomplete and missing a piece, the main and central piece. And that piece is him. And until he's placed into the puzzle, there is no finality. There is no completion. There is no exactness. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says it is indeed fitting. It is indeed fitting. See, what that means is that Jesus Christ, in his capacity as our high priest, is the perfect answer to whatever questions we might ask. What questions might we ask? We might ask good questions. We might ask bad questions. I don't know about you, but I ask a lot of questions to God. I ask a lot of questions of God. That's just my nature. It's the way I think. And sometimes I ask good questions, but sometimes I ask bad questions. I'd like to think. I just, over time, I ask more good questions and less bad questions, but I just thought about, well, what kind of questions might you ask God? You might ask God good questions like, are you there when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Are you there, God? Are you there? Do you hear me? Are you with me? 
I need reassurance. I need to know. I need to sense your presence with me. Those are good questions. He answers all those questions. And then there are not so good questions. But questions nonetheless. Questions like, do I have enough strength? To which the answer is always, no. But it's still a question we ask. And it's still a question he's sufficient to answer. You see, what I'm saying is, when I say that he is sufficient to answer all questions, I mean all questions. Good questions, dumb questions, good questions, bad questions, whatever the question is. He's sufficient. And we ask a lot of questions, whether we realize it or not. Can I make it through this, Lord? Am I enough? Well, no. I'm not enough, but He is. But I need to be reassured of that. I need to know that. I need, I need help. I need an answer. I need, to, I need more faith. I need boldness. I need strength. I'm fearful, Lord. Give me courage. He's sufficient. See, whatever is required... For you to experience maximum satisfaction and joy in life now and forever, Jesus acting on your behalf as your high priest can supply it. That's what Hebrews is saying when the writer says, For it is indeed fitting that we have him as a high priest. It's, it's a very particular phrase. It means that other things are not fitting. That that is the central piece. It is the only thing that could fit there. Remember back uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, Pastor Matt was preaching when we were at that point. That passage says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. Remember, to enter the rest. We had a conversation about the rest of God. And it goes on to say, lest any of you fall according to the same example of disobedience. And we talked about salvation being the rest of God. That when, you're, when you are saved, when you're redeemed, when you're adopted into God's family, you, you rest in that. That there's rest there. Remember that whole conversation? But lest you... Miss the rest. According to the same example of disobedience. The opposite of perseverance is disobedience. And so there's this rest that we should have. We have access to all the time as a child of God. Because we have a high priest who is at the right hand of the Father who is making intercession for us. He is essentially pleading our case. Other places in Scripture say that we have an advocate to the Father. He's our advocate. So what we say to the Father goes through the Son. So it is received as if it were from the Son. It comes through the hand of the Son. That's why, that's why we, we just can't have one or two conversations about the importance of the high priest. That's why this has gone on for, 
three, four, five weeks. It's so paramount and central that we understand this. So he's fitting, indeed fitting for us, that we were made to have him function as our high priest, that in that function all of our needs can be met. So what else does that mean? Well, it also means that you and I were created for a purpose. Now, unless you're just utterly new to this place, then you've no doubt at some point in the past heard me make reference to, I almost said rant and rave about, my displeasure with the magnitude of people who run around talking about how God has made them for a purpose or God has a purpose for my life. It drives me crazy when I hear that because, it doesn't drive me crazy because it's not true, it drives me crazy because when I say, and that purpose is, they look at me with a blank look and that drives me crazy. Don't you live another day if you don't know how to answer the question of what is God's purpose for your life, then you've got a major problem. I mean, come on. And what good is it to know that he has a purpose if you don't know what it is? That is useless information. That's like you telling me that I just want a new car, but I can't drive it. Well, thanks for that. I just inherited a bunch of money, but I can't spend it. Well, God has a purpose for my life, but I have no idea what that is. Come on. He's given us his word. He's given us 66 books to explore his character and nature. And there are just page after page after page of opportunity for you to dive into and explore and, and just revel in the wonder and the splendor of the purposes of God for his people. But how does all of this, how does the fact that, we're, that he is utterly fitting for him to function as our high priest, how does that tell me that, that we're created for a purpose? Well, it tells me that we're not a random collection of molecules formed through an endless age of evolutionary development because it's utterly fitting that he would function as our high priest. So there's some in that is embedded all sorts of intentionality about who we are and how we've been made and created, right? And so, at the very least, we can say for absolute sure, without a shadow of a doubt, we've been created for the purpose of having Jesus function as our high priest, having a relationship with God through the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us hmm. because it was fitting that we have such a high priest that Jesus alone is suited and is appropriate for the task of helping us enter into the deepest and most lasting enjoyment of this of the ultimate reason for which God created and redeemed us
So when you ask a, let's go back to a previous comment I just made. If you ask a dumb question of God, like, do I have enough strength to make it through this? Which I've asked many times in desperation and pain. Do I have enough strength? So it's a bad question, but it's a question I'm trying to find an answer to nonetheless. And in the moment, in the grief, in the pain, in the struggle, in the whatever it is, asking the question, how does the question come before our eternal Heavenly Father? Through the Son. And so the Son will then intercede on our behalf and go to the Father. And although we don't know all the particulars of how that works, it would be something like the Son would come to the Father and ask the Father if He might strengthen you. Because I'm sure that a high priest like Jesus does not repeat a dumb question that we ask to the, to the Father. He he straightens it out. He fixes it. Fixes it. He rewords it. He he makes it theologically correct. He because what? Because it's when it comes from the Son, it's what? It's guaranteed to be heard and guaranteed to be answered. And so it, we we see the the purpose that we have in all of that. You see, the thing is, we live in a world where everyone and everything is clamoring, especially right now. To try to convince us that they have what we need to find satisfaction and happiness. That if we get the right gadget, that if we get the right stuff, if we dress the right way or have the right this or get the biggest sale or do this or do that or whatever it is, it's going to somehow meet our need or make us happy or, or function in our life in some way to, to, to make our lives better or more. I mean, everything is constantly, the message is all the same that, I have what is fitting for you, what's appropriate for you, what you need, what will bring you over the, the top, what will make you desirable or popular or beautiful or whatever the case may be. But what Hebrews is saying to a group of people who are in excruciating pain and suffering and persecution because of their faith in the Lord Jesus, what it's saying to them is simply... There is, in fact, only one thing that you absolutely must have, and that's Jesus Christ as your faithful and merciful high priest. You see, that's what you must have. That's the non-negotiable. To which you say, all right, help me with that. Well, okay, I did. Look at John 15, 5. I don't know how much, what, what else can I say? For Jesus said, apart from me, you can do, how, what can you do? How much can you do? Okay. So, there it is. Right? Apart from him, you can do nothing. So, what else could you need? Look at Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come he shall not see any good come now he is a shrub in the desert and if you saw the shrub in the desert you would say there's a shrub 
And that shrub is doing things because it is there and it's doing something. It's blowing in the wind. It casts a shadow. It's sucking up some nutrients from the ground. It's doing some things, but the Bible says, although it's there and although it's real and although it's doing some things in its function, it shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. Counterpoint. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water and that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. It does not cease to bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit at times. It doesn't cease to bear fruit. So look at what hangs in the balance. If you were the enemy of the Lord, if your, if your life's devotion was to keep people from being effective for the kingdom of God, or was to prevent people from having what is indeed fitting for them, which is the Lord Jesus as their high priest, how devoted would you be? At keeping Jesus away from them. At deceiving them. I mean, look at what hangs in the balance. If apart from me you can do nothing, then what are we going to do? Well, then we're going to do everything we can do to keep people what? Apart from him. If cursed is a man who trusts in man, what are we going to do? We're going to make people trust in themselves as much as we can. We're going to try to convince people that their own flesh is their strength. We're going to turn their heart away from God so that they don't see any good come. That's what we're going to do. So in light of this reality, we should always expect the world, the flesh, and the devil to do everything possible to convince us otherwise. I mean, of course. Listen. Everything in this world is designed to convince you that your central and greatest need is anything other than Jesus. Anything other than that. Anything other than that. Because of what hangs in the balance. Because once you receive Jesus as your high priest, everything then changes. So all the things that the world tries to deceive us with, tries to tempt us with, well, they provide... At best, temporary relief and momentary pleasure. But that will all eventually destroy us. Conversely, there is only one who suits the needs of your soul. Who has been made to fit into that place. It sounds so... You know, pithy to say that. But it's true. That there is a vacuum 
inside of us. That is the shape of the Lord Jesus that was designed and made to have him fill. And nothing else can fill that place. Nothing else can... There's no substitute. There's no... There's all sorts of fraudulent counterfeits, but nothing will work. There's only one who meets perfectly every need and every cry of your heart. You see, the thing is, is that if you think about this, you think, well, this just sounds so simple, but it's, it ought to be, but it's not. And here's why. Because on one hand, you know, in this context, when I say there is only one who meets perfectly every need of the cry of your heart, you can say, oh, yes, amen, let me fill that in. That's great. But the problem is, is that tomorrow you're going to be in an utterly different context. Tomorrow you're going to be in the context of a thousand things screaming otherwise. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to have needs. And even when you turn to your high priest to meet and satisfy those needs... Because he is this ultimate high priest who would not be that if he, you see, he would be anything but an ultimate high priest if all he was was an errand boy. Our high priest is not someone who we just send on an errand. We just say, hey, little Jesus, let me write out my little Christmas list to Santa and give it to you. And you just run on up there to the North Pole and give it to him so his little elves can make all the stuff I want. It's going to drop out of the sky and come into my life. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a high priest who takes what we say and what we need. And when we come to him, he takes those things and he, he puts them into the context of what is right and perfect and enduring and best. And we don't understand what's going on in the meantime. So if you're looking for what's going to feel as if everything is going the way you want it to go, then you're going to have a problem because all the messages are going to be screaming at you saying, no, no, I have what you want. You see, if you do this, then you'll look the way you ought to look, or you'll be popular, or you'll be rich, or you'll be successful, or you'll be whatever the case may be, all those things. And meanwhile, you have brought before God through the high priest your need, but you don't understand because it's beyond us to know what is ultimately for our best, so we don't know. So it seems simple until you think about the, the weight that sometimes never, it never ends. There's no guarantee that at any moment in this life you will fully understand anything the way things work out. You won't know that fully until this life is over. You see, it seems easy until you bring it into the, the real context that we don't walk by sight. But we walk by faith. So what happens is, is that when I, when you and me come before God, we're coming before a God whom we're, this is what we're doing. We are banking on what we know about his nature and character, what he has revealed to us about himself through his word. 
We're not banking on what we see with our natural eyes. We're not banking on what we feel with our fleshly heart. We're certainly not banking on what we hear with our fleshly ears coming in, the messages around us. None of the, Although those are all going full bore, we're banking on the rock-solid foundation of what he has revealed about himself. Now you see the complexity. And so therefore, if you're going to flourish... You need to have a foundation. Now all these simple scriptures that we're familiar with start to make sense. You see, now a parable like a man who builds his house on the sand. And the waves come and the winds blow and great was his crash. But the one who builds on the rock. So you got to have a foundation. How, how, do, how do you... Well, well, I mean, I, I don't know what to even say to someone who is satisfied in their ignorance. You have to know. You have to know. Which is why, again, when I put the verse apart from me you can do nothing the context of that verse is what is the preceding statement prior to that verse abide in me and my word right because how else are you going to know who I am how else are you what else are you going to bank on in trouble what are you going to do Go down to the Dollar General and buy a Cosmo to figure out what to do? What are you going to do, read your horoscope? What are you going to do, call your, your co-worker and ask him? you got to know. you got to abide in his word. Then you will know who he is. Then you will have... Now listen, here's the thing. You can, you can be saved and you can have Jesus as your high priest and not understand how that function works. But why would you is the question I have. Why on earth would you? That baffles me. You see, he's the only one sufficient in every predicament. I mean, these are sweeping statements, but I'm, I'm fully prepared to defend them. Every predicament. Every predicament, all the predicaments that happen upon you, the predicaments that you willfully, sinfully walked into. Every single predicament. Because if he's your high priest, then he's your high priest forever. Forever. It's, a, it's an unchangeable relationship. It's an unbreakable bond. He can't, he can't not... He can't become at some point in the future not your high priest. It doesn't work that way. And we've already been through that in chapter 6. So now the practical question comes. So how do we know that Jesus is up for the task? I mean, come on. I mean, really, how do we know? What gives us such confidence? Why is he so special? 
How is he different or is he different than Muhammad or Buddha or Allah or any other false god? I mean, how do we know? Well, what? I, I want to give you a, a, a bedrock. I believe, I said this a few weeks ago, that chapter 7, verse 25, I think is the central text of the entire book of Hebrews. That's what I think. But that's just my opinion. But it is absolutely, certainly without a doubt, one of the most pivotal Verses in all of Scripture and certainly in the book of Hebrews. And so what we do is we'll, we retreat back to what was said just prior to the verses we've been talking about tonight, which is verse 25, where the Scripture says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. There is a rock on which you can build your foundation. Right there. So what we'll do in the time we have remaining is we'll just draw our attention to two words. Two simple words from this verse. Maybe they're not so simple, but they're, they're simple to say. If I say them, you won't look at me like a cow looks at a new gate, you'll know what they mean. But in this context, two simple words. These two words, they're, they're life-saving words. Life-saving words. They're hope-giving words. These two words, in the context of in which they're spoken... They are joy-awakening, heart-thrilling, breathtaking in their force and implication. So consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So if you took your pen... And you read that verse and you were going to circle two words that you think are the two words that I would be so thrilled about. I think most people would read that verse and they would, they would fixate on drawing near to God in the first part. And they would fixate on the word intercession in the second part. But I think that the two words we should focus on are uttermost and always. Uttermost and always. Because they bring to bear the weight of what's being communicated. So let's talk about uttermost. Uttermost means to the utmost degree, the highest degree possible. What it means is that when the scripture says that, that our high priest is able to save to the uttermost, it means that nothing in 
the salvation that Christ provides is lacking in any way. It is the absolute, complete, uttermost epitome of salvation. There's nothing more that salvation could be than what it is. It means that when we are born again to a living hope and a relationship with Jesus as our Lord, that there is nothing defective in what Christ has done or in the reconciliation with God that He has obtained for us. Now, the reason that I stress this is because what happens is that we, as broken individuals, come into a relationship with God and we are dragging behind us all the baggage of all the hurt and all the shame and all the regret and all the things that we've accumulated over the years prior to coming to know Him in a saving way. We bring all that into the relationship. And we all brought something. And so you bring that into the relationship. And so what happens is we start, to, we start to look at salvation through the lens of all the jacked up things about us. And what happens is it starts to skew things and it starts to make salvation look, you know, not so beautiful, not so perfect, not so immaculate, not so amazing. You see, there's a, there's a, initially, there's a honeymoon phase where it does, but what happens is life eventually sort of starts to get hard again. And at that point, all the voices start to come back and all the, all the skeletons start to come right back out of our closet. And all of a sudden we start to, you know, we don't necessarily feel so utterly forgiven and utterly accepted and, Right? And so it, it starts to look like there's some dents. There's some, there's some problem areas. And wherever you or I happen to be weak or vulnerable, that's where we're going to be attacked. And so I know for sure, I'm looking around this room, there's no doubt, you know what I'm talking about. You know that when you came to Christ, you know what your issues were. You know what, what was broken in you. Some of you are still battling those areas of brokenness and will continue to battle them. And what you have to do is make sure that, that those areas in your life, that you don't, you don't start to see your salvation in a perverted way as if it is insufficient in any way. mm it means that this salvation is complete and whole and pervasive and all-encompassing. So all those deep, wounded, broken areas, all, all of your questions, all of your doubts, all of your fears, all of your struggles, all of your weaknesses, all of your tendencies, uh, your, your, all of those things, all, all of that, it, it is an utter and complete and pervasive, all-encompassing salvation. Now, just universally we struggle with this because all we know is what we know, right? All we know is what we can know, what we see around us apart from supernatural 
revelation of God, all we can know is what. So what happens is for what, what, well, I don't know how old you were when you got saved, but I know this, you experienced something in life prior to that. And so you brought some things into that. And so what happens is, but based on what you, you've, you've experienced, you, you think things like, well, undoubtedly there is someone who is too sinful to be saved. There's someone who's too far from God for God to save. There's someone who's too bad for God to save. And you believe that. And don't look at me like you don't. Because when you see radical jihadists chopping the head off of people who profess to believe in Christ, your first thought is not, get me to the nearest airport so I can go and share Christ with them. Your first thought is, how could someone be so vile and so wicked and so horrible? Because your humanity has taught you to think that way, but that's unbiblical. I mean, after all, there must be limits to what Jesus can do, right? Because everything else in our world has limits, so he must have limits. And the answer is no. He has no limits. He has no bounds. That radical jihadist, it takes the same blood to save him that saved you. It is not more difficult for God to save a serial killer than to save you if you grew up at, on Little House on the Prairie. God didn't sweat an extra drop of exertion because some people are so heinous and wicked and far from Him. No. It's the same. It's the same. Unless you're perfect, you might as well be guilty of all, right? Yeah. So we, we put these limitations Oh, you know, we, we, we put boundaries on the lengths to which God might go. We humanize the function of the gospel and salvation and this great high priest that we have. But here's the thing. When the Bible says that he saves to the uttermost, that blows that methodology into smithereens. See, when you, when you begin to, let's just make it personal, when you begin to wonder... If there's limits to his love, then you should be reminded that he saves to the uttermost, to the highest degree, to the, the greatest length. To, In other words, it could not possibly be stretched any further. The uttermost is as far as far could be. Whatever the definition of the farthest of far is, that is the uttermost. That's the length to which, the degree to which God goes in salvation to save whomever he saves. When you struggle to believe that an infinitely holy and righteous God would ever allow someone as vile and sinful and wretched as you and me into his presence, you should be reminded that he saves to the uttermost. When you just throw up your hands in frustration and confusion, declaring that nothing is good, nothing good could possibly come from 
your situation, I remind you that he saves to the uttermost. In those times where you cannot possibly, you, if you're in a situation, your heart hurts so bad, your, your life is, is filled with pain to such a degree that if some little square-headed Christian comes up to you and quotes Romans 8.28, you're going to punch him straight in the throat because you hurt so bad, so bad. Do, and, and somebody's going to walk up and say, oh, well, don't worry. God's going to use this for good. Uh-huh. But my child is in that little casket. So that's not exactly what I want to hear right now. He saves to the uttermost. The uttermost. Whatever the pain, whatever the, whatever the impossibility of this situation or circumstance or struggle or confusion being redeemed, no matter how impossible that sounds, he saves to the uttermost. So when you're his, he saved you. Even through whatever. He knew ahead of time all that was before you that, that you didn't know. He knew that. It's a moment for you to, to look at a situation, a circumstance in your life where it feels like you may die. It hurts so bad. And to realize that God knew that that, was, that day was in your future when He saved you. You didn't know that, but He saved you. He redeemed you. And He knew that. Because He saved you to the uttermost. Jesus Christ not only saves to the uttermost, but He also always lives to make intercession for us. So, we'll turn our attention to this word, always. So, if He saves to the highest degree, to the greatest length, to the most enormous scope possible, then stacked on top of that is this unthinkably glorious truth that He always lives to make intercession for us. So always, that word always, it speaks of duration and the extension of time. It means never ending and never ceasing. Now again, I realize that this is the more problematic for us of the two words. Because it stretches us. Because we are bound creatures in time. And so when we begin to talk about things outside the bounds of time, it, it's like your head's going to explode. I know. But when the scripture uses the word always, it is, it is incinerating the clock, if you will. The reason it's so difficult for us is because we can't imagine what it would be like to experience this. 
Because all we've ever experienced is that even if, think about this, even if you receive something from someone that is perfect, I don't know what the most perfect thing you've ever received is. It doesn't stay perfect. Nothing does. Everything that we've ever touched or held or beheld with our eyes or heard with our ears or it's all in a state of decay. Everything. Everything left unto itself becomes less perfect over time, doesn't it? So some of you are more at peace with your own decay than others. That you're not as you're not as perfect as you were yesterday and you're certainly not as perfect as you were a year ago and you're definitely not as perfect as you were a decade ago. Are you? Nor is anything else. So if you, it doesn't matter what it is, if you just leave it, it's just the second law of thermodynamics. You just leave it unto itself. It will become less. It will expand. It will expand energy. It will, it will release its energy. It will degrade. It becomes less. Everything does. And so that's all that we understand because that's all that we experience. You get that little beautiful, cute puppy, and that sucker grows up. That little baby's born. Mm. It's so sweet and soft and pure and wonderful, and it grows up. It doesn't stay that way. And every day of your life, you're becoming less and less than what you were. Because everything in you is breaking down. And you can get all the plastic surgery you want to. You can go to the gym 55 times a day. You can take all the vitamins. You can eat the right foods. You can do whatever you want to do. And it's not going to stop it. It's breaking down. It's falling apart. And then the Bible comes along and introduces us to this God who always lives, who doesn't break down, who is absolutely as perfect day one as he is day 20 billion. It never, he, he's, he's utterly perfect all the time, consistently forever. He's above the bounds of the laws of thermodynamics. He's outside the parameters of the clock and time and the passing. He exists the same today, tomorrow, forever, always. It's totally different. And you say to yourself, so how is that so great for us? I mean, it is unbelievably great. Unbelievably great. Because always, this is what always means. I mean, this just makes me want to go crazy. It's so good. If he always lives to intercede for you, 
Do you see what this implication is? Because what I'm about to say is going to go against the grain of what some of you have perfected telling yourselves. The Bible says that he always lives to make intercession for us. So therefore, if you are his child right now, I don't care if you feel like you're his child. I don't care if other people think you're his child. I don't, I'm, not, I'm talking about if you belong to him tonight. The implication that he always lives to make intercession for you means that Jesus continues to live to make intercession for me even when I prove faithless. And I keep failing in committing the same sins over and over again. That means, see, always is so spectacular because it means, always means in my lowest moments, in my least desirable state, in my most faithless times, in my weakest, most backslidden, most rebellious moments, He always lives to make intercession for us. Now, I don't know how much that means to you, but I'm so stinking happy about that, I can't stand it. Because that's what I need to know. Because I don't want to live under the oppression of trying to be what people expect me to be, and you ought not do that either. You ought to live to be who God made you to be. And you need to know something that God knows. That you have good days and you have bad days. He knows that about you. And He knows that you have weaknesses. And He knows that you have frailties. And He knows that you, you're, you're foolish in certain ways. He knows that. But He always lives to make intercession for you. And so when you feel most distant from Him, He always lives to make intercession for you. When you least deserve that to be true in your life, He always lives to make intercession for you. That means He always, 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 always. That is unlike anything in this world. There is nothing else in this world that could fit into that category. He always lives to make intercession for you. How could that? That is so good, it seems impossible. It's so good. That's what the Bible says. Because he's saved to the uttermost. His salvation so encompassing. That he can always live to make intercession. So maybe we should flip it around and just try to simplify it. So we can just take it away and go home tonight marveling at the goodness of God to us through His Word. You see, because He always lives to make intercession, because of that word always, mm. 
So you can't, you can't pry into always. There's no, you, can't, you can't get around it. It's checkmate. Because he always lives to make intercession, then nothing in the universe can stop him from doing so. Nothing. You cannot behave your way out of this relationship. You didn't behave your way into it. You can't stop it. You can't thwart it. No one can. It's impossible. You know why? Because he always lives. So I just think to myself, the next time that you find yourself in a Job-like moment where it seems like the world's crashing down around you and the voices of those close to you are saying things to you that are less than helpful. Just kind of ease off to the side and look up to the sky and say, God, I, I don't understand and I'm hurting and I'm hearing things that are not helping my hurt but magnifying my hurt. And I don't know when this is going to end or how it's going to end. I don't know all the details about it, but here's what I do know. I do know that you always live to make intercession for me. Always. And so in my worst moments, my worst moments, you are fully alive and interceding as you are. That is an unbelievable truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you.